0: As you arrive at the roughly triangular Lügeck, you're probably struck by the two features that visually dominate this square, the monument standing at its center and the white medieval revivalist building just behind it. First, the monument, a full-figure, over-life-size representation of Johannes Gutenberg, the medieval German goldsmith and inventor credited with developing Europe's first printing press using movable type in around 1440. This innovation revolutionized Western European society. Since books could now be made much faster and in greater quantities, they could be sold at more approachable prices, allowing more people more access to information. Literacy rates increased dramatically and an early proto-middle class began to emerge and voice their priorities and opinions in this new medium of mass communication. Many scholars speculate that the spread of printing technology and the access to learning that it facilitated can be credited with the shift towards humanist thought and philosophy that later crystallized in the Renaissance and Reformation in the century that followed. Though there's no evidence that Gutenberg himself ever made it to Vienna, and in fact it took his technology about 40 years to get here since presses were not exactly built for transport in those days, he's commemorated here on Lügeck for two reasons. One, it was paid for by Vienna's Association of Book Printers, the Gutenbergverein, now the oldest union in Austria, whose headquarters were located just around the corner in 1900. And two, there was a big empty space here on the square that needed to be filled. This brings us to the gleaming white facade standing at Gutenberg's back. This is the Regensburger Hof, named for the merchants from Regensburg, who stored and sold their wares here dating back to the 14th century. At the end of the 19th century, a massive renovation to the early medieval building resulted in the design you see today, by an architect named Franz von Neumann, who chose a design heavily referential of the historic significance and earlier features of the original structure. In fact, some of Neumann's design references are probably better characterized as direct citations from the old building. For instance, at the two front corners depicted at the bases of each of the two rounded towers, you'll see busts of a man and a woman in medieval German traditional clothing. These are nearly identical to figures that adorned the original 14th-century façade and are probably the source of the square's name, Lügeck, first recorded in 1257. Eck means corner in German, and lug is an old German term that refers to a structure like a bay window or a shelf onto which someone can lean out to look or auslügen. A few floors up, the central relief and plaque commemorate Holy Roman Emperor Friedrich III, who chose the Hof as the site of a festive ball in honor of the visiting Hungarian king Matthias Corvinus in February of 1470. Incidentally, Friedrich and Matthias Corvinus would become mortal enemies only a few years later, when the Hungarian ruler successfully seized much of the hereditary Habsburg land and moved the Hungarian capital to Vienna until his early death in 1490. If you want to learn more about this curious chapter in Austria's history or meet Emperor Friedrich III, check out my tour dedicated to the interior of St. Stephen's Cathedral. So while the structure before you, Franz von Neumann's renovated Hof from 1897, integrated and even copied a number of the elements of the older medieval structure, there was one major difference. It decreased the building's interior space by more than a third, from 1,262 square meters to just 731. That's going from more than 13,500 square feet down to about 7,800. Most of this reduction in size was due to Neumann placing the new building's facade farther back on the square. If you can imagine, the facade of the older, larger structure used to extend nearly to where the Gutenberg statue stands today. So why would the building's owners want to reduce its footprint, especially since it was now being used as a showroom and sales floor for Persian rugs? The primary motivator was undoubtedly taxes reducing the building's square meterage also reduced its tax burden. As property values rose in the late 19th century, so too did their owners' tax liability. In fact, just a few years after the completion of the renovated Regensburger Hof, its owners were on the hook for more than double what they'd paid only a couple of decades earlier, and that despite the newer structure reducing its footprint by more than a third of its former area. But lopping off the facade had another benefit. It allowed the architect and owners to sidestep what could have presented a costly and labor-intensive set of problems involved with bringing the stability of the building's foundations up to a more modern standard of safety. Because just below street level, right about where the curb encircles the monument today, there was a massive, centuries-old hole in the ground. Rather than dealing with the engineering challenge of erecting the new facade at the edge of a sinkhole, the architect and engineers shortened the building's profile so that its front end was firmly situated on solid ground. And since they figured that eventually this pit would be backfilled to make room for a monument on the now larger public square, the new Regensburger Hall facade was designed to work as a backdrop, its central arched panel of dark windows forming an intentionally complementary frame to the Gutenberg monument that came only a few years later, once the hole was filled in. Speaking of which, the origin of this hole is something of a mystery. The most probable explanation cites the existence of a spring-fed well that dried up around the end of the 14th century, right around the time that a meat market previously occupying the square moved a couple blocks north. By the mid-1500s, it was included as a feature on several illustrated city maps and had received a name, the Marcus Curtius Pit. A tribute to the mythological Roman soldier who rode his horse into a similar pit as a human sacrifice to appease the gods. And since it wasn't paved over until the late 18th century, a number of local myths emerged concerning how the hole got there in the first place. While some of these cited the ritual practices of a Roman cult, its use as some kind of medieval oubliette, like a dungeon used to hold and torture prisoners, and even that students from the nearby University of Vienna had dug it as a joke, The most popular explanation attributed its existence to the casting process of the massive Pumarin bell, now hanging in St. Stephen's North Tower. According to this theory, this hole was dug to accommodate the bell's mold, into which was poured the molten metal taken from nearly 300 Ottoman cannons left behind in the Second Turkish Siege of 1683. While this isn't, in fact, where the Pumarin was cast, it's actually not far from the route the bell had to take into Vienna. Upon its completion in 1710, the bell, which weighed about 23 tons and was over three meters, nearly 10 and a half feet, wide, was placed on a sledge pulled by 200 volunteers, heaving their weight in unison onto two massive ropes and dragged halfway around the city to enter through the only fortified gate large enough to accommodate it. If you have a look back at the Gutenberg monument and follow his gaze to the next street over, you'll see Turmstrasse. This is the route the bell took to the cathedral, a stretch of roughly 400 meters, about the length of four football fields, that it took two whole days to travel. And in the months leading up to the bell's transport, as a preventative measure, all of the buildings along the Bell's route to the cathedral were checked by imperial architects, and their basements were reinforced with additional supports to avoid collapse, many of which are still in place today, more than 300 years later. Now, I began this episode addressing the two most visually striking aspects of this square, the Gutenberg Monument and the Regensburger Hof behind it. But there are also two features of Lugeck that hold gustatory significance. Which brings us to an opportunity for you to taste a couple of local favorites. First, now occupying the lower floors of the Regensburger Hof and named for the square on which it sits, the restaurant Lugeck. Since it's owned by the famous Figelmüller family, who also operate the location tucked into the Durchhaus, the little public passageway off to your right if you're looking at the Lugeck entrance, this is a great opportunity to introduce you to the most famous of local entrees. The Wiener Schnitzel. Now, there are lots of misconceptions when it comes to Schnitzel. For one thing, a certain American fast food chain called Wiener Schnitzel, that specializes in hot dogs and sloppy Joes, has many Americans believing that they'll get something like a sausage if they order a Wiener Schnitzel. Well, Wiener just means from Vienna, since Wien is how you say Vienna in German. And Schnitzel refers to a cutlet. Traditionally veal, but also pork, chicken, or turkey, that has been hammered thin, lightly covered in breadcrumbs, and fried. According to Viennese law, though, you can only use the term Wiener Schnitzel to refer to the traditional veal cutlet. And actually, the name is a bit misleading, since the dish may have originally been a Venetian attempt to recreate an Ottoman delicacy, with golden brown breadcrumbs instead of the gold flake that the Turkish pashas would eat on the original. In the last couple hundred years, of course, Wiener Schnitzel has become synonymous with the Austrian capital, and Figlmüller does one of the biggest in the city, bigger than the plate and fresh to order. You can even hear them pounding it thin if you sit next to the kitchen. Just one word of warning. If you order the traditional veal Wiener Schnitzel, it'll come with cranberry compote and a mixed potato and lamb's lettuce salad. The pork, chicken, turkey, and unbreaded or natur options come with a lemon wedge instead of cranberries, and may offer you the choice of salad or french fries, called pommes. While putting ketchup on your fries is fine, never ever put ketchup on a traditional veal-wiener schnitzel unless you want major stink-eye attitude from your waiter and possibly any locals within earshot. Oh, and one more thing. No matter what Julie Andrews may have told you, you're never going to find any self-respecting Austrian who serves schnitzel with noodles. If you're keen to try some traditional Austrian cuisine while you're here but the schnitzel's not speaking to you, both Figelmuller and Lügeck feature a few additional dishes worth mentioning. Both locations offer Tafelspitz, a favorite of Emperor Franz Josef I. The name translates as top of the table since it's regarded as something really special. It's a prime cut of veal, or young ox, boiled in a flavorful root vegetable consomme and served with apple puree and horseradish. Another great place to try Tafelspitz is a restaurant called Plachutta, which has two locations in Vienna's 1st district, and another near Schönbrunn. Listen to the tail end of my episode on Schloss Schönbrunn for more information. Finally, one last traditional entree definitely worth trying while you're here, goulash. A kind of hearty Hungarian cowboy stew. Figelmuller offers one with veal. Beef is pretty traditional, though you can also find goulash made with other meats, with a fried egg on top, or even vegetarian versions with chunks of potato. It's usually served over one of the many local varieties of dumpling. Here they go with spetzle, a kind of button sized egg drop dumpling called nukidli in Hungarian. While Figelmüller does offer a good lineup of the top three Viennese entrees most people want to try while they're here, Schnitzel, Tafelspitz, and goulash I'd actually recommend heading around the corner for dessert. Following Gutenberg's gaze out toward Rotenturmstraße, you'll find a bustling gelato shop called Zanoni & Zanoni at the corner on your left. This is one of the very, very few gelato parlors open year-round. Most close in the winter in Austria, which makes it all the more astounding that Austrians beat out Italians in terms of per capita annual consumption. Whereas the per person average in Italy is about 6 liters of gelato per year, here it's more than 8. That's about 60 scoops, largely accomplished in half the time between about mid-March to mid-October. Now, my tour participants from New Zealand may be thinking, hang on, our annual per capita consumption is more than 28 liters, and kudos on that accomplishment, but it's important to differentiate between ice cream and gelato. Know the difference? It can be confusing since the name in German, ice, is the same for both, but it's all in the direction the blades are tilted in the machine that churns it. While the mechanism in ice cream machines is designed to work air into the mixture, gelato machines are built with the blades tilted at a degree that will work air out. Since ice cream generally contains more heavy cream than gelato, giving it at least 10% fat, it has to have a higher air content in order to remain soft and scoopable. Gelato, on the other hand, uses more milk than heavy cream meaning that not only does it stay soft and scoopable when it's cold and densely packed, get this, it also has a much lower fat content, usually between 5 and 7%. So since it's practically a health food, why not try one or five of the 30 or so varieties offered here? They've also got a pretty impressive list of sundays or coupes, for sit-down guests, all itemized in their menu in several languages. If you're looking for a low-sugar option, they also produce packaged diabetica ice in a smaller variety of flavors and have lactose-free varieties you can request with the term lactose frei Since this also may be a good opportunity to give your German a whirl, all you need to know is Ich hätte gerne. That means I would like. So, Ich hätte gerne, and then you just tack on the word for either cone, eine Tüte, or Cup einen Becher, and then your flavors, which are usually helpfully translated or represented in pictures in the menu and at the counter. When in doubt, just point. Then you add a Bitte, or please, for good measure, and you're ready to go. Once you've finished sampling the schnitzel and enjoying your gelato, our next stop, Fleischmarkt, is just around the corner. To get there, you'll want to exit Lugek on its north side taking the little narrow street named Kölnerhofgasse. It's the one that intersects the square on your left if you're facing the front of the Gutenberg Monument and Regensburger Hof. Walking down the length of the Kölnerhofgasse will get you to another T-intersection, this time with the street called Fleischmarkt. Take a right and head toward the ornate domed church you see a little way down. Most of what I address in the next episode concerns this church and other features around it, But I also discussed the history of the street itself, so go ahead and press play once you reach Fleischmarkt.